you have a Bible, uh, you're going to want to open it to James chapter 2. We're going to be in James 2, verses 14 to 26 this morning. As I read this passage this week, I was remembering a time from my early days in college ministry. Um, about once a week, uh, we would take a group of college students onto the A&M campus just to talk to their peers about Jesus. And so... Uh, we would just go on campus and, and strike up conversations, ask people what they thought about God, and eventually uh, we often got to share with them the good news of Jesus, that Jesus died for their sins and he rose from the dead, and if they trusted in Jesus, they could have eternal life. So one afternoon, we were out on campus, walking around, talking to students about the gospel, and all of a sudden, there was this, this guy that was following some of the students around arguing with them about what they were saying about Jesus, trying to tell them they were wrong, that their message was wrong. And what was really, what was really interesting about it was the guy was not an atheist. He wasn't from some other religious system. This was another Christian student who took exception to the message that our students were presenting because our students were telling people, if you want to know that you have eternal life, that your sins are forgiven, all you need to do is believe in Jesus, trust that Jesus died for your sins and Jesus rose from the dead. And if you trust in him, you can know that you have eternal life. Well, this guy was following them around and saying, no, 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 that's wrong. It's good to believe in Jesus, but you also, if you want to know that you have eternal life, you also need to commit to do things differently in your life. You need to commit to turn away from your sin, to change your behavior, to stop looking at things that are inappropriate or stop listening to the CDs that you have. Remember, this was not the 90s. The CDs that you have that are inappropriate or stop going to places you shouldn't or stop doing things with your boyfriend or girlfriend you shouldn't or whatever. If you really want to know that you know Jesus, you have to prove it by the way you live. And in fact, he even bordered on saying you've got to earn it with the way that you live. That faith and works uh, belong to, not only belong together, but in fact, you need works to have eternal life, that your works in some way help earn eternal life. So we, so we pulled the guy aside and we said, hey, uh, we have a theological disagreement, fine, we can talk about it, but we're going to ask you not to follow our students around as they're sharing the gospel and argue with them because yes, certainly Jesus wants us to be holy, but Jesus also wants us not to be a jerk and you're being one, so would you please stop? But you know, as I think about that incident in hindsight, I, I, uh, I wonder if uh, a lot of us ask ourselves this question, was he right? Was he right? Is faith in Jesus enough? Are we saved by, by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ? Or do we need to add something to that? What is the relationship between the works of our lives and the faith that we profess to have in Jesus Christ. How do those two fit together? Christians have debated this and argued about this for thousands of years. And the passage that we're looking at this morning is probably one of the most controversial in the New Testament when it comes to this question of faith and works. Because there are people who say, if you really want to go to heaven, you've got to have both. You have to believe in Jesus, but you also have to earn your salvation, at least in part, by what you do. There are also people that say, well, okay, you believe in Jesus and you get eternal life, but then now you've got to prove that you have it or you have to keep it by doing good works. 
So what is true? James chapter two, again, it's a tricky passage. In fact, the passage we're looking at this morning that talks about faith and works, this passage is why a lot of preachers avoid the book of James, because it's tough. It's why a lot of people don't like the book of James. If you read, uh, for example, about Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, he didn't go so far as to say that James shouldn't be in the Bible, but he did say he didn't like it very much. He called it an epistle of straw, a letter of straw in comparison to the letters of Paul because he felt like James wasn't clear about the gospel message. Later on in his life, when he was a little bit cranky, he started referring to the book of James as Jimmy, and he said, sometimes I feel like I would like to toss Jimmy into the stove. That was how he felt about the book of James, mostly because of this passage, because again, he made his life's work to preach that eternal life is a free gift given by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ, and it's hard to figure out Does James contradict what is said elsewhere in the scripture about eternal life? I think we need to to answer that question as we look at the book of James this morning. I think everybody in this room would agree that if you know Jesus Christ, if you believe that Jesus died for your sins and he rose from the dead, and you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you to empower you to obey God and know him in deeper ways, if all that's true of you, then something should change. I think all of us would agree that something is wrong if you believe in Jesus and your life just continues in the same way with no change, no turning from sin, no growing in Jesus. Something has gone wrong. I think everybody agrees on that. The question is what? Does that mean you were never saved to begin with? Does that mean that you haven't yet earned eternal life? What is the problem when your life doesn't match your profession of faith? That's what we're gonna take up in the book of James this morning. In order to get us there, I'm gonna have to give us some more context and background from the book of James uh, as we introduce this section. But first, I just want us to read it. I want us to read this passage, so I'm gonna start in verse 14, I'll read down through verse 26, and then I wanna make a few comments before we dive into the exposition of James chapter two. He begins, verse 14, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, and Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not By faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? 
For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. All right, that's a tough passage, right? Uh, and one of the reasons it's, it's tough is because we immediately begin to think, now wait a second, I know that Paul says in Ephesians 2, for example, it is by grace you are saved through faith and that not a result of works lest anyone should boast. So the question comes up, is James just saying Paul's wrong? Does the Bible contradict itself here? In order to understand where James is going, we need to talk a little bit about the flow of the book of James to this point and the audience of the book of James. Now, James's main point, he makes it very clear. He says it several times. Essentially, he says several different ways. Faith without works is worthless or useless or dead. He says that in several different ways. I think three or four different times in this passage. Faith without works is dead. Faith without works is useless. It's of no use. He says it in multiple different ways. In order to get what he is saying here, though, let me, let me remind us a little bit of the flow of James and the audience of James. Okay, who was the audience of the book of James? We talked about this in week one. The audience of the book of James, he tells us it is Jewish Christians who are scattered throughout the Roman Empire. So these are men and women who grew up under the Mosaic law, the law of Moses, and now they believed in Jesus, and they're enduring persecution and hardship and all of these trials, and James is writing to them to help them understand how to persevere in their faith, how to walk out the life of Christ in their daily lives as they're facing trials and challenges. This is really important. James's readers are Christians, they're already Christians, and James simply assumes that throughout the book, which means James's book, it's different from some of the books of Paul, like Romans, for example, or Ephesians. James is not at all concerned with talking to his readers about how you can go to heaven when you die. Let me say that again. James is not concerned with talking to his readers about how you can go to heaven when you die. That's not in that's not in the purview of James's writing here. If it were, we would expect that at some point in the book, James would mention the death and resurrection of Christ, right? You can't talk about the gospel without talking about the death and resurrection of Christ. He never says that in James. Why is that? Not because he doesn't believe it, but because his main point, he's assuming already that these people know Jesus, and now he's saying, how do you live in such a way that as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, that your life is blessed, what James calls blessed. And remember, blessing doesn't mean you'll have a lot of money, you'll never experience trials or difficulties or anything like that. To James, the blessed life is the life, remember, that fulfills God's purposes. That is, I do and say those things that fulfill, excuse me, fulfill God's purposes for my life and that meets with God's approval. So we talked about how James constantly talks about that day that as Christians, we will see Jesus face to face and our prayer is that our lives will receive commendation from Jesus. That you'll hear, well done, good and faithful servant. With your life, you made an impact on the lives of other people. With your life, you reflected Jesus Christ, his character, his purity, the life that he has given you, right? So when you meet Jesus Christ, and we're gonna see this in a moment, the judgment that you face as a believer is not to determine whether you go to heaven or to hell, but the judgment that is described by James is a judgment in which your life will be evaluated based on how faithfully you walked 
with Jesus in the midst of trial and difficulty and trouble. So this is why James has these passages like this one. James 1.12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And we talked about these crowns, remember these rewards, that they represent the approval of Jesus, that Jesus says you've lived a life in keeping with the purposes of God and a life that meets with God's approval. That's what these crowns represent, is Jesus saying, good job, well done. You've used the resources and the abilities and the time and the talents and the money that you have for your life to make an impact, for your life to have eternal significance, for your life to reflect Jesus. So James says persevere because that's what you want when you stand before Jesus. Further on in chapter one, he says, prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man, here it is, will be blessed in what he does. This person will live a life of blessing that fulfills God's purposes for it and meets with God's approval. So he says, I want you to obey. I want you to persevere, not to earn your salvation, not even to prove that you're saved, but so that you can have this kind of life that in the final analysis, Jesus Christ will say, good job, well done, to be blessed in what he does. Right at the end of of the previous section from last week, he says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. In other words, not by the law of Moses, but by the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. That is, the spirit lives within you. You will be judged by how faithfully you follow the spirit's voice. Again, not to determine if you're going to heaven or hell. That's decided when you believe in Jesus. But instead, this is what is in scripture called the judgment seat of Christ. And it's mentioned several times in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter three talks about it. It says, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work, which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. There's that crown of life concept. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. You see what Paul is getting at. There is a type of Christian life that says, all I want to do is believe in Jesus and coast to the grave. A type of Christian who invests his or her life in things that don't matter in things that will burn up. And Paul says that person, because of their faith in Christ, will be saved, but everything that they've done will burn up. A life of worthlessness, of uselessness, a life that lacks eternal significance. Second Corinthians 5, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. There is a moment where you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, will face Jesus Christ. And our prayer is to hear, well done. We want to live a life of 
usefulness for the kingdom of heaven and not worthlessness in the grand scheme of eternity. All right, I realize that was a long introduction to our passage, but, but I needed to lay some of that out so we remember the flow of the book of James, who he's writing to, and remember this principle. Again, James' point in the book of James, his primary purpose is not to share with you the gospel so you can go to heaven, but instead he assumes you already believe it. So how now should you live it? And so he begins with chapter 2, verse 14, with this principle again, faith without works is dead, is useless, is worthless. So notice verse 14. He says, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Now, this is obviously a rhetorical question, and the expected answer is no. That faith cannot save him, and it's of no use, right? So he says this faith without works, it's of no use. It cannot save him. Here's the key, though. We have to understand, and this is really important, that just like in English, words in the original Greek language, words in the ancient world, they have many definitions depending on what? The context, Right, so you and I, if if I ask you, are you saved? If you've, like me, you've grown up in an evangelical Bible church, Baptist church, something like that, you're probably gonna answer yes or no based on whether you believe in Jesus. And, And if I say, are you saved? You're thinking, am I going to heaven when I die? Now, we're gonna see in a minute, that is actually not usually how the word saved is used in the New Testament. It's used that way a lot but it's also used to, be, to, to refer to being saved from other types of things or toward other types of things. It's a word that can have different definitions depending on the context. We see this in English. Uh, one word that I looked up this week, uh, the word run. If I say I'm running, you have no idea what that means apart from context, do you? In fact, it turns out, Webster's tells me, that could mean 400 different things depending on the context. It could mean I'm running down the street. It could mean I'm running for president. It could mean I'm running a business. I could be running something by you. I, like Tom Petty, could be running down a dream, right? I could be a running river. Uh, We could be playing cards, and I could be running the table. I could go on and on and on and on. Saying I'm running means nothing unless you have some context. The word saved in the New Testament, you need some context, Often the word save, for example, refers to physical deliverance from death or injury. So one example, when Jesus is on the cross and he cries out, you remember, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's people who hear it, they think he's crying out for Elijah, and some of them standing around, they said, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. Now, What are they thinking Elijah's gonna do? Not come and take him to heaven, take him down from the cross, save his life, save him from death, right? James uses this in James chapter one, to save one's life from death. Similarly, Peter walking on the water in the presence of Jesus. Remember, he gets scared and he starts to sink in the water. What does he say? Peter cried out, Lord, save me. Now, Peter isn't saying, Jesus, I wanna go to heaven when I die. He's actually saying, if it's all the same to you, Jesus, I'd rather not die and go to heaven right now at all. I'd rather you'd pull me up. Save me. Same word. But save from what? Save from death. Sometimes salvation refers not to something that happened when we believed in Jesus, 
but to something that will happen when Jesus returns, that Jesus will save us from the presence of sin and the power of the devil once and for all and the power of death once for all. Romans 13, do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awake from sleep. For now, salvation, you being saved, is nearer to us than when we believed. That's, in, that's interesting, right? Uh, when I believed in Jesus, was I saved? Or will I be saved when Jesus comes back? Yes, both and. In this context, salvation refers to something that will happen, not something that has happened. Same word. Another usage of it, and this one's important, 2 Peter 2, or 1 Peter 2, excuse me. Peter says, yearn like newborn infants for pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up to salvation. Now that's kind of a weird phrase, but you're going to grow up to be saved? He says, I want you to yearn for pure, pure spiritual milk. Know the word of God. Pursue knowing God. Pursue praying and walking with him so that you may grow up to be saved? But wait, wasn't I saved when I believed in Jesus? Yes. But I'm also being saved as I walk with Jesus? Yes. What am I being saved from? I'm being saved from the the presence of sin in my life, the power of sin in my life, from the consequences of sin in my life, from the consequences of a life poorly lived out of step with the character of God in Jesus Christ. I'm being saved from all of that as I read the scripture, as I come to know Jesus Christ. So I was saved. I am being saved. I will be saved. All of those things are true for the person who knows Jesus Christ. So again, when we see the word saved, when James says, can that faith save him? We have to ask, save from what? Save for what? I believe James is using the word saved in the same way that Peter uses it here. And we're going to see some illustrations of this as we move through the passage. He's not saying that we're talking about how you go to heaven when you die. Instead, he's saying, how can you be saved from this life of worthlessness, of consequences of your sin, of a life that does not meet with the approval and praise of Jesus Christ at the judgment seat of Christ? Can a faith without works save you from that? No. And therefore, it's useless, it's worthless, it's dead in the impact it makes on others' lives, in the impact it makes as people are, are, are not, they're not able to see how your life glorifies Jesus. Faith without works is dead. Now, he's gonna give us an illustration now to validate his point, starting in verse 15. He says, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? So you see the illustration. You're talking about faith without work. So you walk up and somebody has no clothes because they can't afford clothes. They cannot eat. Their stomach is full. And you say, I believe in Jesus. Therefore, get better. Go, go be warm and be filled. What good is that? What have you done for them? Nothing. That is the life of uselessness, of worthlessness, a life that, that you say, I believe, but nothing happens positively as a result of that belief. It's not doing anyone around me any good. It's not bringing the glory to God that my life is intended to bring. James is not saying, therefore, you're not a Christian. He's saying something that I think is equally, if not more tragic. You're a Christian who knows Jesus Christ who's living a life 
of worthlessness. What use is that? So it'd be like if you walk through your kitchen this afternoon and the sink is just filled with dishes to the brim. And you walk by and you go, man, people should clean their dishes around here. Right? And so you, you call a family meeting and you talk about the dishes. Hey, here is all the reasons that we need the dishes to be clean. I believe that dishes should be clean. Let's pray for the dishes to get clean. Let's have a, let's have a prayer time. The dishes will be, get clean. Maybe you write a book, 15 Ways to Keep Your Dishes Clean. But what you never do is clean the dishes. Right? What good is that? You've expressed a sentiment, a belief, with no action behind it. That's useless. That doesn't do any good. James, therefore, says, therefore, faith without works is dead. He's going to say later in the passage, just as a body without a spirit is dead. It's not that the body doesn't exist. It's not that it isn't a person. It's that it's dead. It's useless. It's not doing anybody any good. Another way of saying this might be uh, your phone without battery is what? It's, it's dead. We say that all the time. We anthropomorphize our phones, right? They are, they are dead, right? And so a lot of people, I read this this week, 90% of Americans have what we call low battery anxiety. Uh, when the battery level gets below 20% and that little battery turns red, people start to panic. People's heart rate goes up and their palms begin to sweat. And I read, actually, people will do all kinds of things to make sure it gets charged again. 22% of Americans admitted that they have purchased a meal or some sort of food at a bar or a restaurant just so they could use the outlet so that they can charge their phone. Somewhere around a third of people, 32% said if they're out somewhere and their battery gets low, they'll drop whatever they're doing or leave behind whoever they're meeting with and go home to charge their phone. A third of you would do that, is what it says. 25% have argued with a spouse because of a, of a dead phone, because your spouse or, or significant other tried to text you like, like you need to do the dishes and you didn't hear it, and that started an argument. You go, my phone is it's dead, right? It's, it's worthless. That's, that's the idea. If it's dead, it doesn't fulfill its purpose. It's a glorified paperweight. It just sits there and does nothing, right? So you can't text your friends or your parents or your your spouse or your kids. You can't do your email. You can't do your TikToks. You can't do any of that. The phone is dead. But it's still there. It's just not doing any good. Faith without works results in a life of that type of worthlessness, uselessness. So James says faith and works are meant to go together. You ought to be walking with the Lord and growing in maturity. And over time, if you know Jesus, your life ought to match your profession of faith. So now what happens is James lays out this principle and then he's going to give us an objection to the principle, right? Uh, he's going to do something that you may on, on one hand think is a little bit odd. He's going to introduce an imaginary person to argue with his point, all right? They call this uh, in ancient literature, it's an imaginary objector. It is that the guy makes a point and then he goes, but Somebody would argue with me by saying X, Y, and Z. Preachers do this all the time. You lay out a point, and you're like, you may be thinking that I'm wrong because, right, A, B, and C. And you lay out the reasons that people might object, and then you answer them. 
James is about to do this. Sometimes we do this just in our own conversation. If you're talking with a friend and you say, I want to tell you why Lane's chicken fingers is better than Cain's, right? And so you proceed to lay out your reasons. I think they, they taste better, they're crispier, the sauce is better, they've been in this community longer, whatever it may be. And you go, but you might say to me that Cain's is better because they're bigger, right? They have 600 locations around the country. That's what you might object to me. But I say to you, I would rather eat one small box of Lane's than 600 large boxes of Cane's, right? So I've come back around and I've answered the objection. This is very common in ancient Greek and Roman literature. That's why verse 18 begins with this, but someone, right? There's the objector. Some person is going to argue with me by saying, Something. Somebody's going to argue with James now. James constructs a fake and imaginary objector. Now, here's the challenge. When you read verses 18 and 19, what's really hard is to figure out where do the words of this imaginary arguer begin and where do they end, and James starts talking again. All right, so if you, some of you, if you have the NIV, you'll notice uh, here in verse 18, they put the quotations after the word, the first to deeds, right? So uh, you have faith, I have deeds, period, end of quotation. They say that's where the objector's argument ends. Um, if you have an NASB, the uh, quotations are at the end of verse 18. So you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works. I'll show you my faith by my works. They say that's what the objector is trying to say. You're like, why, why do we not know where the quotation marks begin and end? The reason is because in the Greek language, there's no such thing as quotation marks. So you don't, you don't know. It, it's interpretive. You've got to read the context and figure it out. All right, now I am going to say this morning, I, I believe that the quotation marks ought to end actually at the end of verse 19. All right, so I'm going to show you how it, how it ought to read and then why and explain it. All right, so, uh, but someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works. I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well, the demons also believe and shudder. All right, I think all of that is the words of the imaginary objector, this guy who's arguing with James. Now remember, James wrote all of this. There is no actual person saying this, but James has constructed this argument. Why do I think the quotations go that far? Here's why. This type of argument is used elsewhere in Greek literature, and it is used elsewhere even in the New Testament. Let me give you one example. 1 Corinthians 15. Paul is arguing for the bodily resurrection of Jesus and of those who believe in Jesus. And then he goes, but someone will ask or someone will say, so here's your false objector, your imaginary objector. How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Look how Paul responds. You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. So this is real common. You would establish the objection, put it in someone else's mouth, and then respond to it by saying, you moron, right? That's the way these types of arguments tend to work. So that's sort of the, the clue that you want to look for in the text to know when the objection ends. There's another illustration, Romans chapter 9. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? In other words, uh, why are we blamed for our sin if God's will uh, accomplishes everything in the universe? Now look how Paul responds. Again, but who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? You silly man. Who are you to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? All right? So you see the way the argument flows. Imaginary objection, 
you foolish person, you silly person, you idiot, don't you understand my argument? Now, where do you see that kind of response in James chapter 2? Well, it's in verse 20. After that objection, verse 20, what does James say? But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, you idiot, you moron, are you willing to see that faith without works is useless? All right, so I think this objection, it goes all the way through the end of verse 19. And here's what I want to do is just explain briefly what this objection is to what James is saying. It's important to remember, James is saying faith and works should go together. If you want a life of usefulness, of significance, a life that uh, fulfills God's purposes and meets with God's approval, you want that kind of life, faith and works should go together. The imaginary objector in a nutshell is saying they don't have to go together. You could separate them out. Let me give you an example, all right? So here's what he says. He says, okay, James, let's imagine that you have faith. You just have faith with no works, but I have works with my faith, right? So let's just imagine that. I've just got, I'm sorry, you've just got faith. I have works with my faith, all right? So we're setting up a contrast. Prove to me, James, that you have faith without showing any works. Well, you can't do that, right? You can't prove that you have faith if, if you don't have any works. You can't prove faith. It's inside. It's, it's invisible. You can't prove it. At the same time, I can't show you my faith with my works either. Faith can't be proven like that. In other words, if you can do your thing, James, uh, show me that uh, faith uh, it can exist without any works, which you can't. Uh, it's the same degree to which I can show you it by my works. You can't do either one of those things, right? You could have works without faith, right? You could have faith without works. The two could be separated. He goes, look, James, you believe that there is one God. In other words, this is the classic uh, profession of orthodoxy, Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one God. You, you hold to an orthodox faith and, and this is key, and you do good works. Literally, you do well. But this is a, this is a verb that means to do good things. You do good work. So he says, hey, James, listen, your argument is you believe that there's one God and you do really good stuff. But he goes, look at the demons. All they do is they believe and they just, they shudder, they shiver, right? This objector is making what amounts to a very absurd argument. Then he goes, look, faith and works can be separated. Just look at the demons, right? And you go, well, wait a second. The demon's faith isn't doing anybody any good, right? That's the point. The point here is not whether or not the demons go to heaven. I think everybody knows they don't. The point is, what good is their faith doing when they go, yeah, I affirm, I assent, I believe, but it doesn't do anybody any good. All right, so James has constructed this argument so that, again, he can come back with this response. Yeah, faith and works, maybe you can technically separate them out, but you're an idiot, right? Because you've made a ridiculous argument born of absurdity, using the most ridiculous possible illustration. So he comes back and he says, yeah, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Now, I want to say this. The first time I, I walked through this passage and understood it in this way, it, it is confusing. So it may be you're here and you're like, I don't know what you've been saying for the last eight minutes. That's okay. All right? It really is. Because I want you to understand, don't get lost in the details of this objection and this objector. I want, I want us to keep the main thing in mind. Very simply, James is saying, faith without works ought to go together if we want to have the life that God approves of and the life that fulfills his purposes. The objector comes in and goes, they don't have to go together. 
You could split them apart. And James goes, yes, but if you do, it's worthless. Your faith's not doing anybody any good. It's not helping, certainly, that guy with no clothes on his back and no food in his stomach. It's not reflecting the character of Jesus Christ. It's not doing anybody any good. Don't you understand? Faith and works are meant to go together. When you believe in Jesus, you're meant to respond by growing in your faith, by becoming more like Jesus, by sharing the gospel, by knowing his word and obeying his word, by caring for the poor and the vulnerable, by caring for your neighbors, by bridling what you say, by separating yourself from the sin and impurity of this world. That's what's meant to happen so your life can reflect the glory of Jesus Christ and the character of Jesus Christ. If it's not happening, you are in an immature faith. You are immature. You are a spiritual infant. And so James is, is going to give us a couple of illustrations in a moment of what your faith ought to look like to say what's supposed to happen is when you trust in Jesus Christ, you're meant to grow in your faith. You're meant to produce works that represent what you actually believe. You're meant to grow up. Maturity is a part of what ought to happen in the Christian life. If it doesn't, something is wrong. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have no faith or that you've got to earn your salvation, but something is wrong. Think about it this way. So, so sometimes um, our kids, we've got a couple of high schoolers and a middle schooler, sometimes they will comment, they'll say, there are kids at school who are our, our age, and they say their parents still do things for them that you don't do for us, right? So uh, I'm not gonna judge anybody else's parenting necessarily, but they'll be like, hey, uh, their parents, even though they are 17, their parents still make their lunch for them in the morning. Why don't you do that for me? And I go, look, I, I don't know exactly what age a parent should stop making lunch for their child, but I'm pretty sure at some point before you move out of the house, you should learn how to make a sandwich and put it in a lunchbox, right? Because when you're 32, and you're in the corporate world, you cannot call mom or dad and say, I forgot my lunch, can you make me a sandwich, right? If that's where you are in life at that age, something is wrong, right? Something has gone wrong in your maturity process. Or if you are 35 and you still need a wake-up call from your mom in the morning to get ready for school, something has gone wrong, right? You're a real person, you look like a grown-up, but you haven't matured. That's not the way it's meant to be. It's not how it's supposed to be. So James says what's meant to happen is our faith matures. And he, so he's going to use a couple of illustrations here. The first one is Abraham. Look what he says about Abraham. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God. And it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Wow, so that's a, that's a pretty challenging statement. And the reason it's challenging is because it actually seems on the surface to contradict what Paul says about Abraham in Romans 4. If you've read Romans 4, Paul says, What, shall, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. 
Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. In other words, if you work for something and you get credited with righteousness, that's just what you've earned, is what he's saying. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So who's right, James or Paul? Paul says, hey, Abraham's justified by faith apart from works. James here, he says, no, it's faith and works together. Who's right? The answer is they're both right, but they're talking about different things, all right? To be justified in its simplest form simply means to be declared righteous, to have somebody say of you, your obligations are met. You don't owe me anything. Our relationship is good. You're declared in the right. Everything is square, all right? Paul, in Romans 4, he's talking about Genesis 15, when God appeared to Abraham, and he said, Abraham, I'm going to give to your descendants the promised land, and, and I'm going to give uh, you seed as many as the sand on the seashore, and your descendants will bless all of the nations. He makes this promise to Abraham, and we know that's the promise that Jesus comes through. And it says, Abraham believed God. He trusted God. He didn't do anything except believe God, and it's credited to him as righteousness. God gives him credit in his righteousness account because he's believed. At that moment, Abraham becomes a believer in God's promises. You could say at that moment, Abraham is justified. God says, that's a righteous person who believes. That's what Paul is talking about before he did anything bad or good. (coughs) Excuse me. Now, in James, James moves forward to Genesis 22. 40 years later, And he says, here's this moment where God says, Abraham, I want you to take your only son, the son of promise, the the, the only one. I want you to sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. And Abraham believes. He gets up. He goes with Isaac to Mount Moriah. And you remember, God, of course, saves Isaac's life. But Abraham obeys. He believes God and he obeys. Here's what James says. That's what a mature faith looks like. So was James justified when he believed? Yes. God credited it to him. As righteousness. Is James justified when he offers up Isaac? Yes, because now Abraham, excuse me, Abraham has become in practice what he already was in position. He's become, practically speaking, what God already declared him to be when he believed. Abraham has now worked out his salvation. He's become mature. That's why then James says he's called the friend of of God. It's not just that God now declares him righteous. Anybody looking at Abraham can see that he's righteous because his faith is mature. James says that's what we're aiming at. That's what we long for is that type of life where our faith grows to maturity, where it doesn't stay in its infancy, but more and more as time goes on, we obey God in deeper ways in bolder ways, in truer ways, as we walk with Jesus Christ so that we live a life not of worthlessness, but of eternal significance. And then he uses Abraham, or excuse me, Rahab, a very different type of person. But you remember Rahab, the harlot who lived in Jericho, and she believed in the God of Israel. And so she harbored the spies who came into Jericho to spy it out. Because of that, her life was Saved. Remember, she put that scarlet cord or thread at her window, and her life was saved. She believed in God, 
that expressed itself in an act of mercy and kindness to these spies, and it resulted in her life being saved and a deeper connection with God. Again, James says, that's what you're aiming at. If she had merely believed but not acted, she would have died. And so James says, you want a faith that is useful when it comes not only to saving life, but also to making an impact for the kingdom of God for eternity. That's James's argument. And he closes by saying again, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. James is not saying that you have to earn your salvation by works. He's not even saying you've got to prove that you have it by all the things that you do or you've got to keep it by all the things that you do. What he is saying is simply this, that if you know Jesus Christ, that ought to result in maturity and a transformed life and works of righteousness. That's the normal course of the Christian life. And if that's not the course that your life is taking, something's gone wrong. And so we have to ask, are we becoming more like Jesus? James's argument is very similar, I think, to Paul's in Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so that we would walk in them. You are saved by grace through faith alone, but you are also saved for a life of purpose and meaning and significance, not a life of uselessness. And so James, James would want us to ask that question. Am I stagnant in my walk with the Lord? Or am I growing? As, as we close, let me just ask a few reflection questions. One is simply this. Do you know that you know Jesus? Do you have confidence of your salvation? I think James would say his goal in this is not to make anybody question whether they know Jesus. If you've believed in Jesus, you can know that you have eternal life. You are saved by grace through faith alone. If you have not believed in Jesus, it doesn't matter how many good things you do. You will not earn eternal life. Your works can never merit you favor with God that leads to eternal life. And so do you have confidence of your salvation? You can be confident if you've trusted in Jesus Christ and believed in him alone to forgive your sins and give you eternal life, that you have it. And if you do know him then, is your life reflecting your faith? Think back at your life from a year ago or two years ago. Have you grown? Have you changed? Are you more in love with the word of God? Do you care more about other people and actually do something about that? Do you love to pray more than you did a year ago, two years ago? Is your heart being changed by the grace of God and by the Spirit of God, or are you just the same? Is your approach, I know that I'm going to heaven, so I'm going to coast until I die? James says that's not what we're called to. He's going to say faith without works, it's, it's worthless. If you want to live a life of significance and meaning, a life where you hear well done from Jesus Christ, your Savior. Are you growing? Are you moving forward? And if not, or even if so, what steps do you need to take to move forward? It may, it may be that, that 
you need a moment of repentance to say, God, I, I acknowledge that, you know what, there's, there's sin in my life that I haven't even really struggled against. I've just kind of let it be. And I'm sorry. And I want to change. I want to move forward. Or it may be that you say, I know that there are ways in which I can use my time, my energy, my resources, the affections of my heart to make an impact and reflect Jesus in my community, in my neighborhood, in my family, and I haven't done it because of fear. Or maybe, maybe you just say, I don't know where to start. I don't know where to begin to walk with the Lord. And maybe, maybe the next step for you is you, you need to connect with some people here, with a group of people in one of our Bible studies or community groups or somebody you're sitting near just to help you take that next step. To say, God, I don't want to live a life that is, is devoid of what you're trying, of the works you want to create in my heart. I want to live a worthless, useless, meaningful life, meaningless life, but instead one that has an impact that reverberates into eternity through the power of the Spirit of God. So we're going to close in worship, but before we do, I want us to take just a moment or two of reflection. And we'll leave these questions here for just a minute, but, but ask yourself these questions. Say, God, I want to move forward. So let me trust in you. Let's take that moment and then we'll close in worship.